All right, hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he is busting through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. It's Mr. Jeff McLaughuge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Crash, bang, boom. That would have been great if instead of like the Kool-Aid man, like Macho Man Randy Savage, he should have been like doing Kool-Aid commercials instead he, of he, Slim Jims. He should have been doing them all. He should have yeah. just been doing it. Like, he never knew what he was going to come running through the wall with. That would yeah, should have been awesome. Oh, yeah. Kool-Aid is the greatest yeah. drink ever. Or, oh. Macho Man Randy Savage for reverse mortgages. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh. I had an interesting back and forth on the Facebook this weekend with a lot of people that I didn't know. And I found myself kind of like defending an opinion of mine that is probably wrong, but I don't care. I'm going to stand by it. Good heaven. Arguing with people on the internet on Facebook. That's super out of your idiom. Who are you and what have you done with Bill with one L? Yeah, well, it kind of is. But there's somebody that's been in the news for the past, oh, I don't know, year or so. I'd rather not give the guy any airtime whatsoever because he's kind of persona non grata. Okay. But he has been characterized as a musical genius. And I had said, in my pea brain little opinion, that somebody should really be a musician before they're considered a musical genius. You Mm -hmm. know, because this person does not play any instruments and it doesn't matter who we're talking about because there's plenty of people like this in the music industry. So this person is not like in in my broad definition is not a musician. He's a producer. And that's to me a a different line in the sand, you know? Okay. All right. I'm picking up what you put down. So how did this turn into an argument on on the Internet? Well, The guy was like, are you saying that this person with X amount of Grammys, the most of any one particular artist, is not a musician? And I go, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Very loudly is how I'm saying it, too. And then, you know, it opened up like a a broader discussion. Like one guy was being a a real, real, real ball bag about it. But Mm. somebody else was like much calmer, which is a great way to have the discussion. He was like, well, you know, how do you feel about vocalists? And I was like, hey, you know, it's such a weird gray area because like somebody like David Lee Roth or Johnny Rotten, I don't consider them musicians. I consider them performers. Right. You know, you know I can see that. I can see both sides of the argument, though. Yeah. Because it's even not to be uh, foreshadowing what the show will have as a component today. But, for example, someone like David Lee Roth, you yep. can hear the difference that he brings with his voice and persona. To Van Halen compared to when they had Sammy Hagar or they had Gary Sharon fronting the band. And I think right. that that's the equivalent of having a different guitar player or a different bass player or a different drummer. In that, yes. it's a, that integral component, that musical component that makes it so different. Right. But the other side, and this is where I was saying, you take you know Van Halen or my favorite band, the Marillion. Mm-hmm. Whenever they switched out vocalists, you know, David Lee Roth for Sammy Hagar and then right. Fish for H in Marillion, their sound radically changed because Sammy Hagar and H are both musicians. They play instruments and they added to the process, whereas David Lee Roth just went, wow, 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 and yeah. stuff like that, you know? <laughs> but no, see, I'm going to argue that, that that in and of itself, though, is an instrument part of the band. An instrumental part of the band, even. 
And I would say that <laughs> the difference between if you want to make the argument that it's it's different than instrumentation, th- th- look at like women and children first or Van Halen 2 versus Van Halen's last record with David Lee Roth, which we'll talk about later. But yeah. one has keyboards in it, which is an additional instrument, and one doesn't. And those albums are very, very, very different sounding because of the different change in instrumentation. And irrespective of David Lee Roth being in both versions of the band, mm. both bo- on both albums. Right. And then, like, I, I kind of brought up, like, Paula Abdul. Mm-hmm. You know, because the, the Wikipedia definition, we'll get to that too. The Wikipedia definition of musician includes like vocalists. It's like with Paula Abdul, she didn't really write any of the songs. I mean, she helped out with some of the lyrics later on because they forced her to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they would have other vocalists, people that could actually sing, go in and record what they call guide tracks that she would sing along with. You know, so with the Wikipedia version or the Daniel Webster definition of musician, that would include anybody that gets up and sings like Doors covers at karaoke night. And I don't consider them musicians. Uh, I don't know that that it applies the same way because you're not integral in making the record or making the music or creating the music. But I think somebody like David Lee Roth or even, and I'm, I can't believe I'm, I'm going to say this, the guy upon which you were discussing on the internet, whose name will not be mentioned. Persona uh, non grata. Yeah. Persona non grata. That actually effectively makes them musicians. Yeah. I'm not going to die on that hill, but like that's, that's yeah. my, that's my point. Yeah. In the, in the broadest definition of the term. It doesn't but, matter how broad it is. It's, that's the yeah. definition that works. I yeah. think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I don't like him. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Like I, again, I, I'm not not a fan either. But yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue that his yeah. his role is is somehow not what he's recognized for. So that's all. I mean, that's a huge discussion, and it'll it'll never be 100 percent solved. So anyway. All right, but uh, before we get to the show proper, I do mm-hmm. have my very popular and always well-received oh. trivia question. Mm-hmm. Hey, Jeff. Uh, hey, Bill. All right. I mean, you remember Gilligan's Island, don't you? You remember that TV show? I do remember that TV show. All right. So we had the very lovely Tina Louise as Ginger. We had the yes. equally lovely, maybe even more lovely, Don Wells as Marianne. And then we had a character who's basically her name was lovely, Mrs. Howell. Was, All right. Was lovely. Uh, yeah, lovely. lovely. That's it. Yeah, lovely. lovely. So, Mr. and Mrs. Howell were married. There was a pretty large age discrepancy between the two. Mm. Who was older and by how much? Oh, Ooh, that's a good question. Not bad, I guess huh? we'll have to wait till the end of the show to find out. Ah, that's how we get you. That's how we keep people sticking around. All right, but this is the week beginning January the 9th, and I think it is your turn to start. All right, it is my turn to start. January 9th, 1984, rock band Van Halen releases their most successful album, which, ironically enough, is called 1984. And as we described just a few minutes ago in our conversation about what makes a musician a musician, etc., it caused the, the end of the iteration, the first iteration of the band. Yeah. And it also took a, like you had said, a sharp right-hand turn yes. uh, into it, synthesizer land. Although they did kind of dabble with it with Diver Down, the album they did. before. Yeah, yeah. It was way more musical than previous Van Halen records. And it didn't follow the formula that they had used on Van Halen 1, Van Halen 2, etc. 
where they'd have three or four singles, one of them being a, a well-known cover, a couple of filler tracks, a guitar solo piece, and then you know onward to the next record. They were like Creedence Clearwater Revival. like It was like a record every year. Yeah. You know? And when 1984 came out, it was not like that at all. It had two distinct singles to start with, Jump and yep. Panama. And I don't remember any other singles from that record. Oh, come on. Hot for Teacher. Oh, Hot for Teacher. So Hot for Teacher, yes. Oh, wait, dude. Drop Dead Legs is on that one, and so is I'll Wait. Oh, gosh. I thought I'll Wait was a yeah. long, was a one from before, too. Yeah, there's a lot of singles off of this. I remember this album being absolutely huge. One of my best friends at the time was this dude, Neil, who was 100% Van Halen's like biggest fan in my area anyway. That opening riff there from Jump, mm-hmm. that song got so overplayed. Yes. That just and and also one of the first songs I ever learned to play on keyboards. So just hearing that opening riff, it's like, all right, enough. I don't need I literally never hear need to hear this song ever again, ever in my life. <laughs> that one still comes around on the radio a lot, and so does Hot for Teacher. Yep. Uh the other one's less so. I hear Panama now and then, but not that often. Which surprised yeah. me because I always thought that was the most rocking song on that record. Uh, agreed. Agreed. It, it's a great album. It's too bad that they imploded at that point. But yeah, our good friend Gene Simmons, who coincidentally founded, you know, found Van Halen. Yeah. Yeah. Almost signed. Uh, him. Almost got him signed. Yep. Gene Simmons uh, had said famously one time, every personality has contradictions and large personalities have large contradictions. And David Lee Roth, in spite of the fact that he's from Indiana, has... <laughs> has a large, 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 large personality. And it just watching and going back in time and watching them, it's no wonder they imploded. It's, it's right. of no surprise. Yeah, It didn't help that MTV sort of heaped uh, attention on David Lee Roth, too, and Ooh. really amplified the frontman status of his status in the band. Right. In a band that had three ginormous egos to deal with. Yeah. The two Van Halen brothers and him, you know. Yeah, then yeah, and then Michael Anthony just standing off to the side. <laughs> yeah, Very Michael Anthony's there on the side, like, oh yeah, remember me? <laughs> I'm the guy with the Jack Daniels bass. Doom, 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 doom. All right, moving on to January the 10th. Ooh, this one's right up my alley. <laughs> Actually, more like right up my sidewalk because that's where I tend to uh, to do my business. On January the 10th, 1981, a man by the name of John Severin. Uh, sets a 100-mile unicycle speed record of 9 hours and 21 minutes. This guy did what in the cycling world is called a century on a unicycle. Yep. And I'm going to open up my calculator to figure out how many miles per hour he was going. He was going 10.7 miles per hour, which is hella fast on a unicycle. (laughs) That is screaming on a unicycle. When he got to the end of 100 miles, he just his legs just fell off. Dude, seriously, my balls hurt just reading that sentence. 100 <laughs> miles on the unicycle. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Like, one, like, what size wheel did he have? Because that makes a difference. I have two unicycles. One's a 20, one's a 24. Yeah, and I, I, I'm going to guess it probably was bigger one, and it wasn't like, almost, it was probably almost like riding a, um, a like a penny farthing bike. Which is yeah, I was trying to think of the name bike, of those, yeah. Know. That's what I would have gotten of as a penny farthing bike, just a 
ride that around town. Right. Typically, whenever I go out for my unicycle ride for practice and or exercise, I go out for about two and a half miles. That's like a good one. And that's mm-hmm. literally the better part of an hour. Yeah. Ten, 10 plus miles an hour on a unicycle, dude. That is screaming. That is that's, screaming fast. I can't even imagine. Where do you find, like, you must have to be on some sort of beginning of close encounters of the third kind type straight, flat. Or a circle track. something. Or a circle track that's going to be flat. Because, yeah. you know, because you can't coast. It's not like you can coast downhill. No. No, you can't You can't coast at all on a unicycle. The, right. the, people ask me that all the time, too. And I was like, no, the wheel is spinning or it's not spinning. There's no brakes. There's no coasting. There's no, uh, right. uh, like, uh, remember the old bicycles when we were kids, they had, like, the jack brakes where you would, like, pedal backwards yeah, pedal to backwards. stop. Yeah. yeah, you can pedal backwards on a unicycle. You just fall on your face. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this was set in 1981, and nobody's touched the record since because nobody wants to. <laughs> right? Yeah. one of That's one of those. That'll be in Guinness forever. Yep. Ah, it's all yours, John. That's yeah, you know what? I mean, I, you know what? Maybe I'll try to do that coins on elbow thing. That, that seems to get yeah. a lot of... That doesn't seem anywhere near as tough on my nuts. Imagine trying to break the record. You get to the end of 100 miles, and like, oh, you're three minutes over. Dude, just hand me the gun. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's go on to the 11th. January 11th, 1787. Sir William Herschel discovers Oberon and Titania, the two moons of Uranus. Yay! (laughs) Three cheers and two moons for Uranus. Uh, What do we really have for the 11th? We we really have January 11th, 1995, the fifth and ultimately the last primetime television network debuts and begins broadcasting in New York City. It's called the WB or the Warner Brothers Network. Oh, yeah. It specializes in African-American programming and showing a lot of like older Warner Brothers cartoons and stuff during the Saturday morning segments. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't exist anymore. So the first three networks were NBC, ABC, and CBS. Right. And th- that was the only three for like the longest time. Right. And then in the 80s, like the late 80s, Fox Network came out. And then before WB, there was the other one, the UPN Network. There was UPN and there was C- yeah. the CW. Oh, right. And then, and then CW was gobbled CW. up the UPN like Pac-Man. Yep. And then they both got gobbled up by my TV, which still exists on some level. CW is owned by CBS and still exists as well. Oh, okay. That's that's where, like, the Arrowverse shows all live for Mm. the next approximate, like, three months. And then the last of them will be canceled. But those are cable channels, though. I think think the difference between those and UPN and WB was those two were terrestrial. Those they, are like the they, last, the last of the terrestrial network stations. Right, they yeah. were they were terrestrial broadcast. Yeah, put a gun to my head, dude. I can't think of a single show that was on the WB off the top, you know, right now. I believe they used to use uh, Michigan, right? Michigan J Frog as their uh, their yep. mascot. Yes, that's what There's, I remember. The Wayans Brothers had a show on that called the Wayans Brothers. Yeah, WB Wayans Brothers. <laughs> Wayans Brothers. You know, God love. Our good friend Andy Warhol, because he wasn't wrong with the, you know, everybody's going to be famous for 15 minutes. I think he, I think he overestimated, uh, <laughs> because yeah. now with terrestrial TV stations is basically all but dead. Mm-hmm. I think I know like one person 
that has a like an HD antenna. Because mm-hmm. he doesn't really have cable. He only does streaming services. He has an HD antenna so he can pick up like football games. Yeah. I would do the same thing here, but... You have a dog. Setting up an antenna is a pain in the rear end. I'd have yep. to like wire parts of my house differently. I don't want to do that. All right. So moving on to January the 12th. January the 12th, 1981... The single Rapture by the, at that point, former punk rock band Blondie is released. Uh, Rapture will go down in history as the first rap song to go to number one. Oh, really? It, was, it took a blonde white lady, huh? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> interesting, yeah. <laughs> I remember a blonde white lady deep into her 40s. Um, Rapture's a good tune. Um, you know, sort of poking fun at the way. It, I don't know that it would have gone number one had it not been on MTV and super duper heavy rotation for that first year of MTV's existence. Yeah. But it did introduce Fab Five Freddy to ultimately the to verna- MTV. Yeah, to the vernacular. To yeah, a personality yeah. on that show. Yep. And helped make the genre palatable and pave the way for other artists. It's a good tune. The rap in it is, well, let's just put it this way. No one had really figured out what to do with those yet. And it shows yeah. in this song. Yeah, the the rap done, you know, performed by Debbie Harry realistically isn't all that much better or worse than the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight. Nope, true. The flow is very cable television. My name is Gus and I'm here to say I like oil changes in a major way. You know, kind of, <laughs> kind of a thing. The, the wordplay of the song is, is really fun, and it has a good bridge and chorus mm-hmm. that makes it, again, that makes it palatable. So it's... it. The same year as this album came out, Adam and the Ants came out with their Prince Charming album, which yeah. had the, Ant the rap song Ant Rap. And both Ant Rap and Rapture, just to show you how, how weird the genre was at the time, both of them break into French just to make words rhyme. Gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. Any point in the storm, guys. Right. Right. So, I mean, it wasn't the last album with her. It just seems like it was. This is on the the album Auto American, which was a huge departure from what they normally sounded like. Right. Because, I mean, they were pretty much a punk band, you know, during the 70s. So you can make an argument that they were a punk band. They had a lot of punk influences. But on Auto American, they had this like rap song. The lead single was the song "Tide Is High." Remember that? Yep. That's a cover song. That's a yeah, That's a cover a, reggae yeah. song. A cover of an old reggae song, yeah. And uh, they actually had a couple more albums. Oh no, they had one more album after Auto American called "The Hunter," mm-hmm. which was like the first album they ever released that didn't go gold. Yeah. Like it, ba- it barely even made a, a blip. I don't think they ever like broke up, right? They stopped playing and touring because the guitar player, who was Debbie Harry's like longtime love interest and I think current husband, had mm-hmm. a skin had a, like a skin condition, yeah, and needed and couldn't deal with like the lights and the sweat and the other stuff, and it really exacerbated it. So they they sort of stopped playing, and she never yeah. left the band. Uh, she- well, no, they, they, they did because I remember whenever Blondie got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, it was the original lineup mm-hmm. that got inducted and there was like a big kind of like stink that she was playing with other people right? and that, and the other people are the ones that performed, even though it wasn't the other people that got inducted. Uh. And I remember like one of the guys like called her out on it on stage at the Hall of Fame induction. Oh. 
saying, yeah, we're Blondie, not those guys. All right, moving on. Hey, speaking of uh, bands being called out, January 13th, 1979, the YMCA, or the Young Man's Christian Association, I think is what it stands for, mm-hmm. uh, files a lawsuit against the, the village people over their song, In the Navy. No. <laughs> over their song, YMCA. The suit was later dropped, and I'm sure it's because somebody said, this song has gone number one. They sing this song at every sporting event in America. Kids yeah. sing this song as part of their gym class in elementary school. It's like free advertising for the YMCA. What is wrong with you? Yeah, uh, nobody knew who the hell you were, like, except for like the local Catholic grammar school basketball team. Nobody right. knew who the YMCA was. Right, or the, people wanted to have a pool party in the wintertime. That was it, right? Right, right, yeah. So, And then there's this, this whole song. That would be like me suing somebody who did a song called Big McLarge Huge. I just said, yep. large huge, he's a really great guy, big Mick, large huge, right. give him a purple tie or whatever, and like, no. <laughs> and that was like 1979. They say that America's gotten too litigious, you know, over the last like 20, 30 years, but man, I, I think we were, we've always been lawsuit happy. Right. Well, the worst part was that this lawsuit was only the first that they had to deal with. They had to deal with the lawsuit from... Macho Man Randy Savage that came not long <laughs> after this one for their song Macho Man. And then from the U.S. Uh, Navy for their song In the Navy. I think what the big stink was, and, you know, thankfully we live in way more enlightened times. The village people were, they couldn't even be openly gay. They were just because of the the way the times were at that time. Right. But, I mean, they were very heavily linked to the gay community. And yeah, the YMCA... And City, yeah. You know, being the young, you know, Christian as, uh, association, nah, 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 that's revolting. They didn't want any association with that. But like you said, it's like, dude, free advertisement. You know? Right. Ixnay on the lawsuit lay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. I, I got some more initials for the next day. January the 14th, 1990, AFHV, or better known <laughs> as America's Funniest Home Videos. Ah. The television show that put ball shots on the map. <laughs> uh, debuts on ABC television. Yeah, you wouldn't think a show where people like randomly injure themselves in a desperate attempt to win $10,000 would be lung-scrambling and brain-fuzzingly funny. But, yeah. God, that show, there was nothing like that on television at all at the time that it aired. And I remember watching it at the... I worked in my family's restaurant, watching yeah. that on Sunday nights, and it just being peals of laughter. That show was insanely popular, and that became later what we would come to know as water cooler television, where, you know, the next day at work, everyone's talking, hey, did you watch America's Funniest Home Videos last night? I sure did. That guy got hit in the balls. Or that guy fell off his roof. It was uh, the ones that won tended to be somebody just like getting smacked or, or they, hurt in they some needed way. the ten thousand dollars because they were in the hospital when they showed the audience of like the three finalists it was like family a kid with cute dog family b yeah. guy trips on car and bangs his head family d only the husband is there because his wife got thrown off a horse and then kicked she's over there like in a, a blow chair drinking through a straw yeah right yeah or in traction like all plastered together in the <laughs> 1930s hospital scene in a comedy 
So uh, the show was hosted for the first, I think, nine seasons yeah. by Bob Saget, who unfortunately right. is no longer with us. Right. You know, citation needed. I think the show is still around in some format. I'm not sure if it's still on, but it was on very recently without yeah. many format changes to it. Well, other than nobody's mailing in VHS nobody's tapes. Nobody's mailing in VHS tapes out. anymore, yeah. I don't know that the contest aspect of it is part of it anymore. It seems like the last time I watched it, it was more like... Was that show Tosh.0 where they watched uh, yeah. funny stuff from the internet? You may not understand, audience, not you, Bill. I know you understand. Yeah. Uh, but in like 1990, this was like brand new. Having like just anybody being able to send in content yep. and have it showcased on in a national audience like this, it just wasn't done. It had never been done before. And it was right. incredibly – it did two things. It was incredibly popular for two reasons. One – it was really funny when it was really funny. And yep. two, it was really inexpensive to produce. So everybody <laughs> could think of a way to make this same kind of TV started to make the same kind of TV. Yeah. I think the most like laborious part about the production would just be sifting through the thousands and thousands of video cassettes they would get like every week. I'm sure you'd have guys taking like two weeks off. Let's move. My rewind finger's broken. <laughs> All right. Let's wrap up the week. January 15th, 2001. Wikipedia, or the Free Encyclopedia, is launched by two guys named Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger. And Citation needed. Modeled on the idea <laughs> of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where pretty much anybody can add content, Yep. and anyone can kind of moderate content, it very rapidly became two things. One, the sort of go-to for up-to-date information, especially on things that are very current, because it updates much faster than traditional encyclopedia, even encyclopedia webpages do. And two... Yep. Not an effective source if you're writing a high school term paper. So, kids, you got to go find real encyclopedias. It was, in 2001, it was a mess. The Wikipedia right now is a lot better than it was 22 years ago. Wow. Wow. That just felt weird to say. Wikipedia's been around for 22 years. But, like I said, it's a lot better now than it was in 2001. Because I remember in 2001 and 2002, your friend of mine, Jim, used to go in there and just, like, put in the the worst uh, possible imagined definitions for certain entries and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And just, like, laugh at how long it would take for some of that stuff to get taken yes. down. Having things removed from Wikipedia that you had gone in and vandalized was always always made for a fun evening if there was nothing else going on. Yeah, that's another thing. Yeah, I don't know what just if it fell out of fashion that Wikipedia vandalization, as you just worded it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it's fell out of fashion or they just have you know better policing of such things. Well, it's community based. Here's how the sausage is made, right? Every change that gets made to a Wikipedia page has to go, yep. it gets sent to a group that has to moderate it and uh -huh. determine if the change will stay. And it may oh, show you that the change is there, but before it gets spooled out to anyone else outside of your local computer. It has to be vetted by whoever the people are that are assigned to or choose to volunteer and manage that page huh. and that information. I hit up the wiki all the time for research on the show. Matter of fact, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, have the, I have the wiki open right now for what's going to be our worst song ever later. Yeah, so do I. All right, moving on to the celebrity birthdays. January the 9th, 1944, guitar player for the unbelievably influential band Led Zeppelin, Mr. Jimmy Page. Oh, yeah. Who man who can play blues licks and also write songs about hobbits, about elves, and then move into the uh, the castle formerly occupied by <laughs> Alistair Crowley. That's right. What a That's weirdo! Right. He's a strange so, dude. 
Jimmy Page, obviously a um, amazing guitar player, uh, an influence on uh, countless people all over the world to the point where you're not allowed to play Stairway to Heaven in guitar centers anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, God I don't know how to play that song. All right, that's what I would go and do. Yeah, somebody sent me a video, and it's been around for many, many years, but I just got the video said to me recently have you ever watched the video where i don't remember who the band was but i remember it was ann wilson and you know some other musicians i don't remember who they were but they were singing stairway to heaven and stairway to heaven is one of those songs that you just don't touch you know and freaking robert plant and jimmy page and i think james earl jones i wouldn't know that guy if i saw him but they're all in the audience like watching it was like a command performance and stuff like that and Jimmy Page just has this like big ear to ear grin on his face. And Robert Plant is just sitting there with like his hand on his chin, just like taking it all in. Wow. Um, and yeah. And if there's one vocalist that's going to handle that song, it was her. So mm. yeah, if you've, if you've never seen that video, seek it out. Just to, just to look at the big smile on Jimmy Page's face. I'll have to hunt it down, and then I'll send you the video of Frank Zappa's band doing it live with a <laughs> horn section instead of a guitar solo, which is awesome. With Jimmy Page rushing the stage and the, the getting held back by right. security. I'll kill you, mother! <laughs> I think you sound more offended. Like, I'll kill you. <laughs> All right, January the 10th, what do we got? January 10th, 1953, Pat Benatar, or as her pre-fame name, uh, Andrew Zuski, is born. And What's she's- her name? Pat Pat Benatar. Yeah, but what's her real name? Andrzejewski. Oh, my God. It's an easy one to spell. It has all the letters in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it looks like a cat ran across the keyboard. Jesus. Uh, I remember the first song I heard from her, which was You Better Run. And that was, again, that was in heavy rotation on MTV. Yeah, that's actually the second video that they ever showed. Is it really? Yeah. So yep. there's that. I saw that. I remember that song. I remember Hells for Children. And a bunch of other songs. She had a whole string of hits in that first, like, four or five years of MTV. Yeah. I mean, she and her husband, who Gerardo, Greg Gerardo, who were, was in that band with her, still tour. Yep. Yeah. They're stand- yeah, they're still together. So, you know the song from Rick Springfield, I've Done Everything For You? That was written by Sammy Hagar. That's the Sammy yes. Hagar song. Yeah. But on the Rick Springfield version of it, that's actually um, Gerardo, that's Pat Benatar's husband that's playing the guitar on that song. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They've been together forever. They played. Um, they played my hometown over here in New Bedford, mm-hmm. and my friend Jeremy and his wife Sharon. Their wedding rings are inscribed that says "We belong" oh. because she's a huge Pat Benatar uh, fan. Yeah, and they they actually like had them stand up in the audience to uh, like draw attention to that. Yeah. Wow, that's very cool. <laughs> we thought so. Yeah. All right, moving on to January the eleventh. January the 11th, 1757, Jeff. All the way back. I, I remember yep. that year like it was yesterday. Yeah. Uh, American statesman and gun duel enthusiast uh, Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, some th- some things you're enthusiastic about, they just don't pay out for you. You're getting th- yeah, enthusiastic about it once. You can be too big of a fan, Bill. That's what yeah. we're saying. <laughs> Get that inscribed on your ring. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Alexander Hamilton, best, probably best known for being on the $10 bill. Um, mm. There's also a, I don't know if you heard about, there was a Broadway musical uh, oh, modeled after him. Yeah. I had no idea. Also, fun facts about uh, your friend of mine, Alexander Hamilton. 
is he founded the United States Coast Guard, 1790, yeah. and also the first political party, the Federalist Party in 1789. Yes. Yeah, he had a busy life up until he got shot in the ribs or whatever, wherever it was that he got shot. Yeah, he got shot in the ribs, and it did yeah, it, yeah. that did him in. Aaron Burr put him put him out of his misery. I've always said that they should replace Alexander Hamilton on the ten dollar bill with George Hamilton because we need <laughs> <laughs> we need somebody that's just impossibly tan. Yeah. I think it should be a picture of a Hamilton Beach mixer. That way, you get the George Hamilton idea of the tan beach guy, but you also oh, yeah. get an appliance. Yeah, that very makes good. Frosty milkshakes. Mm. All right, moving on to the twelfth, January twelfth, sixteen twenty eight. Even further back than good old Alexander Hamilton. Uh, a Frenchman named Charles Perrault, who's an author that took a bunch of folk tales that have been traditionally told verbally and compiled them into a book. He's probably best known for the more modern versions of Cinderella and a Little Red Riding Hood and Puss in Boots and Bluebeard, one of my favorite weird stories that I didn't realize was a fairy tale because I've always seen it and it involved naked women. <laughs> Out of all the ones that's listed over here, Bluebeard is the one I'm not familiar with, which is surprising, seeing as that involves naked women. Uh, but yeah, he also was uh, Sleeping Beauty. So basically, Disney. Uh, the, <laughs> the original run of Disney stories are all Charles Perrault stories. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure Disney will never make a Bluebeard. Don't be surprised. In this in this economy, they'll... they'll <laughs> running, right. You never know, right? Yeah. It'll, it'll be like the Disney... Uh, I don't know, like Disney A or something, some whatever adult version of Disney that comes out. Where, uh, <laughs> Disney, where a lonely Disney old plus man plus, marries, yeah. and, marries and murders young women. Late night Disney Plus. Late like night the, Disney Plus. The, the old Skinamax, yeah. <laughs> All right, so moving on to January the 13th. Hey, it's my brother's birthday. And it's also my your brother's, brother's birthday. birthday. Yeah. So not only do we share brothers uh, uh, with birthdays on January the 13th, but our brothers share their birthday with American comedian and mustache enthusiast and toupee enthusiast, uh, Rip Taylor. You remember oh, Rip I Taylor? Like, I feel like throwing some confetti uh, and, yeah. and yelling. He was always the guest on something. I don't think yeah. Rip Taylor actually did anything except for show up and throw confetti and just be Rip Taylor. I, I remember seeing him as a kid, you know, in the 70s, like on the Hollywood Squares and the Gong Show. Christ, he was on the Gong Show quite a bit as a judge. He was. He also hosted the, the – it wasn't technically a sequel, but it was a companion show to the Gong Show after the first season, right? The $1.98 beauty pageant. Yeah, that was Chuck a – Chuck Barris special. Yeah, it was another Chuck Barris production, yeah. Uh, years ago, like before uh, Rip Taylor died, my friend Bruce – made a haunted house character that was like a zombie Rip Taylor. Yeah. So he had the mustache, a bad toupee, and he threw confetti, but he also had like zombie makeup on and stuff like that. And then he filmed the video when he put it up online, and Rip Taylor actually commented on it. Did he really? Like, yeah, he says, not bad. Not good, but not bad <laughs> not either. Bad. Sounds, sounds like exactly what Rip Taylor would say, yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on, January the 14th. January 14th, 1959, a voice of one of the most influential and amazing records that I could listen to for two weeks at a time and then I ignore for you the rest of the year. Jeff Tate, former lead singer of Queensryche, current lead singer of Jeff Tate and the Jeff Tate band sing the songs <laughs> of Queensryche with Jeff Tate. Jeff Tate was, like, like you just established, the singer for 
the heavy metal band Queensryche. I would I will venture to call them a progressive metal heavy uh, yeah, progressive I, I metal band. That that's yeah. the, I wouldn't argue with yeah. you. I think that's correct. They were definitely more proggy than their contemporaries. Yes. And while Jeff Tate wasn't the first to sing with the high pitched vocals like he does, he definitely broke a wall down where at that time there were a lot of vocalists in heavy metal that did the high-pitched you know screaming like i said he he wasn't the first but he broke a wall down and a lot of people following jeff tate sang like that oh yeah yeah he definitely was sort of an extraction of at least in style kind of of like a almost like a if you were to take bruce dickinson from iron maiden and and rob halford from judas priest and sort of jam them together yeah you kind of get that he he could do both he could do the sort of shrill and super loud, and he could also do the really melodic and vibrato that yes. that like Rob Halford could do. And he's still got a fantastic voice. He still tours and plays, travels around, and does the Jeff Tate show, and has you know legions of fans, legions of rapidly aging fans, <laughs> dozens upon dozens of fans. Yep. And then wrapping up the birthdays on January the fifteenth, nineteen thirteen. Uh, American actor Lloyd Bridges, who, thank you, Wikipedia, I just found out that he's Jeff Bridges and Bo Bridges' father. Yeah. Yes. They both acted with him on the show Sea Hunt in the 60s. I've never seen Sea Hunt. I didn't realize that all all three of them were on that. Yeah, that was one that was never in, um, it was never in reruns when I was a kid, like Flipper was. Like (laughs) Flipper and Sammy the Seal were in reruns for my first 10 years I was alive. Yeah, but uh, Sea Hunt was serious though. It wasn't a comedy, right? No, yeah, Sea Hunt was serious. It wasn't a comedy. Yeah, and that was the that's what made the movie Airplane what it was. Is it had so many dramatic actors like Leslie Nielsen was a dramatic actor prior to that, and Lloyd Bridges was a dramatic actor prior yeah. to uh, Airplane, and they were just both hilarious in that yeah. movie. Yeah, Robert and Stack then, too. Yeah. Yeah, and then Lloyd Bridges went on to do a bunch more like screwball comedies like that. Because remember, he was in Hot Shots. Yes, he was on the uh, on the ship there. He, yeah, he every, was the admiral. Yeah, yeah, but he kept on complaining about not complaining, but bragging about his uh, his injuries. I had the better part of my bladder blown off in the Korean War. Right. Yeah, yeah. I like when he he puts the towel through his two ears and he's like going back and forth like he's cleaning the inside of his head, and he just <laughs> says, uh, "Stainless steel, stainless steel ear canals." I got to had a little big horn. So he got an arrow <laughs> shot through his head. It's like, that was my favorite. So he, yep. has, he has the best lines of that whole movie. Hey, you know what doesn't have the best lines? The worst song ever. Jeff, the, today's worst song ever, to me, it's a no-brainer. Like, this song was super, super, super popular mm-hmm. for, like, a heartbeat. And then everybody was like, hey, you know what? We hate that song now. Uh, yeah. We are talking about the very huge successful hit for the band Aqua, uh, Barbie Girl. Yes. And <laughs> let's let's play a clip and then we'll start. We'll have our chat there, Jeff. You can
Okay, so whenever I brought this up, fair audience, whenever I brought this up to Jeff, it's true uh, that this was going to be today's worst song ever. He very enthusiastically told me, "I've had this record since 1997, <laughs> and I like it. I always have. I've liked it since it came out." Okay. The whole record itself is its admittedly repetitive, but it's fun. But the Barbie Girl song has been on probably half of my gym and or running playlists that I've had since I started really exercising with ferocity in the right. last 15 or so years because it's such a catchy, doofy, I don't even have the right adjectives for it, goofy song. <laughs> Never fails to put a smile on my face when I bump into it if I don't go looking for it on purpose. Yeah, you were like, oh, I love that song. I love that whole That's album. Right, I do. I love that whole album. Yep. Yeah, my take. This is not my genre. So, do I like this song? No. Do I hate this song? <laughs> also, no. This song doesn't flick any needles for me at all. But whenever you said, "Oh yeah, I like this song. I like the whole album," and as a part of the show, something I do every week is I listen to, if not the whole album, the majority of the album. Right. Now we should uh, tell so people I, the album is called Aquarium. By the way, it's the yeah. first of their three records. This one yep. came out in '97. They have a couple of other ones that came out in like 2000. Four and sometime later than that, yeah. uh, I don't have any so, of those. Yeah, yeah. They broke. They put out two albums, then they broke up, and then they put out a third album called Megalomaniacal or Megalomania or something right. like that, which didn't do as well as anything else. So I was listening to the album, and I was like, every song is roughly the same speed, roughly the same tempo, and roughly the same drum beat. There's a couple <laughs> of songs on there that are, like, slower, but it's the same exact drum beat, just, like, they just slowed the tempo down. It's like yeah. they bought one. It's exactly like, the well, same structure in every song, too. So yeah. it's, like, female, 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 and then the guy who goes, like, come on, someone, someone, someone. Then there's yeah, uh, female, female, is, female, female. Yep. His name is uh, Rainy Diff. Yeah. And... He's, well, they're from Denmark, yeah. right? They're actually the biggest act to come out of Denmark, which yes. is surprisingly not that impressive a statement to make. <laughs> like, the prior, from, from the country that gave us Reptilicus, they also yeah. gave us Aqua. Yeah, I, it's like at this point, it's like King Diamond is pushed down to second place. <laughs> although although I think Volbeat, I think Volbeat's also from Denmark. Ah. But that guy there, we just said, Rainy Diff, like every song, he's got that same... Come on, Barbie, let's go party. And it's just like, it's always the same voice. Yeah, he's the, it's always he's the, the s- Danish Fred Schneider. That's his whole routine. <laughs> That's his job. He's Fred Schneider from Denmark. That's He's Copenhagen's <laughs> answer to the B-52s. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. They are, they're like a B-52s with a drum machine instead of being an actual like, I'm, band. I'm uh, telling yeah. you right now, that's why there's so much fun. Is because... Uh. You know exactly what you're getting into just as soon as I throw that disc on. And I know what I'm yep. getting into. It's like getting into a two and a half liter bottle of like store Sugar brand water. root beer. Yeah. It's ice cold store brand root beer. I'm going to regret this later. But right now, <laughs> for the next 15 or 20 minutes, I'm going to power down as much of this sweet nectar as I possibly can. Whenever I was listening to the album and I heard Diff doing the in every single song at the same pitch, I was beginning to like fantasize that it was like a voice that you could buy for your GPS. Yeah, like Waze. Just, yeah. <laughs> Take a left turn at this stop sign. <laughs> so I'm reading up about the history of this band, right? They started out, their original name was Joy Speed, which... Good, you know, thank God, good taste prevails. And uh, that's not a, that's not a bad name. It's just it's just isn't as it's memorable. It's not as, a great name. It's um, true. 
So they record this song. They get together and record this song, and it's Itsy Bitsy Spider. And you already know the lyrics because you know that song. Right. And it didn't chart. It didn't do well. And they were like, well, we should just break up. And <laughs> and it's like, you just you recorded a children's song, and you're expecting it to chart? Right. What's wrong with you? Well, I'm going to um, guess that this was around the time that there was a whole bunch of like kids' songs – or kids' music that ended up on in dance music. So there was a Sesame Street rave. Techno song, yes, there that's right. There was a techno yep. song. There was um, the that. Prodigy did the Ch- uh, Charlie, Charlie song, which was based on another English kids' TV show. There yep. was a bunch of other ones as well. So it doesn't surprise me that okay. they would try that. Yeah, Considering uh, it's so Europe, the- home of the Eurovision yep. Song Contest. <laughs> and then, you know, with Barbie Girl, you know... Obviously, they got some phone calls from the YMCA because then, you know, Mattel, <laughs> Mattel, you know, tried to sue them because, you know, the lyrics for Barbie Girl are a little provocative and they don't really sell the Barbie Mattel doll mm-hmm. image. But to also be fair, they never could really come out and really say, I mean, Barbie could be anything. I, I mean, it doesn't have to be the doll. I mean, it, it invokes the doll, but it doesn't have to be the doll. It's. I think it's a great, I think it's a great song. I remember uh, when I worked at the, uh, I worked at a place, I ran like an after school program for elementary and middle school kids. And this song was on 9 million thousand times in a row uh, mm-hmm. when we were running around outside, like, you know going from like shooting baskets to jumping rope to playing four square and whatever, because inevitably it was on somebody's playlist or so somebody had a mix CD that they had, their parents had made for them. And the song was on it. It was always, always one that we looked forward to. Yeah. I, and I think that ended up being like their undoing as well, because it was so ubiquitous. And it's like, as soon as it starts, like, hi, Ken. Hi, Barbie. Uh, it's like, oh, God, here we go. Here's the next two and a half minutes of my life, right? <laughs> yeah, I still dance around to this song in my kitchen. <laughs> I don't have that luxury. Uh, they did have a, a couple of follow-up singles. Yep. They, I mean, nothing really that big in the United States, no. other countries. I mean, certainly Denmark, but... The only one that charted in the States, I think, was Candyland or Lollipop, whatever it's called. Uh, yeah, depending more, on... more kid stuff. Um, right. I mean, this style of music is a lot more popular in Europe than it has ever been in the States. I mean, dance music is always going to be popular no matter where you go. But this particular style of dance music has always been more popular overseas. Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, this was definitely yeah. the music of choice at the school discos we had when I lived in the UK. Absolutely yes, the it, style of music. So one of the reasons yeah. I love it so much. Oh, yeah. If you hear this song, you're not going to be like, I wonder if this is, these are Americans. Absolutely not. No, no, no way. Th- this kind of music doesn't come out of America. They had another follow-up single called Roses Are Red, which yep. did very well in, in Japan. You could see this kind of music doing well in the, in the Eastern countries, too. But the song called Roses Are Red, and you already know the lyrics to that one, too. Like, lyrics were not their strong suit. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, they're Danish. So they're writing, <laughs> they're writing for the non-Danish audience, right? So yeah, I'm not saying that none of them are, are fluent English speakers. They absolutely probably certainly are. But I'm going to guess that it's difficult. It's difficult to write for an audience that you don't primarily speak for and still maintain 
a record contract and fame in your home country. I went out going, you know, I went over to YouTube to try to like, I'm a much more visual person yeah. uh, than reading. So rather than like memorize the Wikipedia page, uh, citation needed, I went to YouTube to see if I could watch like some documentaries or some news stories about Aqua. And they're all in Danish. And they don't even have like American, sub, uh, you know, English yeah, subtitles no. so I could like read and follow along. It's all like, no, I don't get you. I don't, I, I, I learned nothing. I learned nothing other than that if I ever shave my head, I'm not keeping sideburns like that guy. <laughs> all I can say is that as looks far as, silly. <laughs> as far as for video presentations go, the video for this song is so bananas and batshit insane that it's it's <laughs> worth going to watch even if you hate the song it is so a product of its time it's just it's yep. like somebody fire hosing the 1990s into your eyeballs <laughs> all right before we wrap up the show i do have the answer to my very popular and always well-received trivia question hey jeff uh-oh on gilligan's island the married couple the only married couple on the show mr and mrs howell there was an age discrepancy between mr and mrs howell who was older and by how many years? Well, I know part of this one from some some other trivia somewhere that I'd read, but I, I knew that I know that the woman who played Mrs. Howell, Lovey, was older than yep. Jim Backus. Yeah, Natalie Schaefer. Natalie Schaefer, yeah. And she was older than Jim Backus, yes. But how much older was she? I'm gonna throw out a round number like twenty seven years. Jesus Christ. 27? Well, she did look pretty old. I always thought so whenever I watched the show. I always thought that she was, uh, you know, like considerably older right. than everybody else. Um, she was. <laughs> so, yeah, but not by 27 years. Jesus, dude. Uh, no, their age discrepancy was 13 years. Uh, when the show started, Jim Bacchus was 51 years old. Right. And she was 64. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, she was born in 1900. 1900. Which, yeah. So she would be 123 years old now. Oh. And still and still look about the same. I, I think you brought it up to me before the show that Tina Louise had made a joke that she was like in her 80s whenever the show was on. Yeah, I think what T, the way that I, I remember the interview, what she said at yeah. the interview was that they had just been hired for the show. And, and they were looking at the scripts together, and she says, do you think they're going to fire me? And she says, why? She goes, because I, I didn't tell them my real age when I got hired. And she said, well, what do you mean? How old are you? She says, well, I'm really 83. Huh? Tina Louise was like, oh, wow. You know? So, I don't again, I don't I, I may be misremembering that, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. Yeah, no, she wasn't 83, but she was 63, which right. is, uh, yeah, it's a little old in the tooth for being on a sitcom like that. Right, right. So. All right, but that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, where this week was way better last year. You can find us on messages over on Facebook or Instagram using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, when you tell your friends and get them to listen to Twibbly, it makes you popular and always well-received.